Far east of the Sword Coast, the Shadowvar and Escavrin have fallen. The Shadow Storm is no more. Sembia is fractured into city-states. A mysterious hero rises from the ashes to usher in a new era of prosperity. Yet there is still suffering. Cormir and the wild elves of the Dalelands offer war on all sides. Earthmotes, madness, and shadow dragons plague the lands. These are the tales of the heroes who ended that suffering. 1491 DR, the year of Sembian revival. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Long-Winded One. With me tonight, I have Dave Gross. And if you don't know him, I'm sure you do, but if you don't know him, he is a game designer and an author. He was an editor for Star Wars Insider, Amazing Stories, Dragon Magazine. He has worked for TSR, Wizards of the Coast, Paizo Publishing, he has written uh, for various settings, including Forgotten Realms, of course, uh, Pathfinder, War Machine, and Arkham Horror. I had started reading, uh, um, other than the obviously the Symbian novel, some Symbian novels rather. Um, I had started reading some of his Radovan and the, the Count uh, Pathfinder novels. But again, of course, the reason we're interviewing Dave Gross is because he was heavily involved with the Symbia Gateway to the Realms novels. He ended up writing the Talbot short story called 30 Days and uh, the resulting novel called Black Wolf. And he also followed up Clayton Emery's Tamlin short story um, with the Lord of Stormweather novel. So Dave, thank you for coming and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So we're going to get right into this. I'm going to just start asking the questions. Um, I've sent you these questions ahead of time, so you know what's coming. Um, but I was hoping that we could start with just a little bit of your origin story. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what set you on your path to becoming a creator of worlds? Well, I was always a bookish kid, and the happiest day of the year for me wasn't my birthday or Christmas. It was when the weekly reader showed up at school and we got to order books uh, through, I think, Scholastic. Mm -hmm. And I was a big fan. The ones that I remember the best, anyway, uh, early on were uh, the Encyclopedia Brown mysteries. I loved those. Yeah. And I soon moved on to anything that was spooky, ghost stories or horror stories or monster stories. I loved mm -hmm. that stuff. I couldn't get enough. And uh, soon after that, I moved on to science fiction novels. And at both our school library and at our local city library, I would just start at A uh, and move my way to the right until I ran out of science fiction. Because back then, it wasn't super common to find science fiction in the, in the general library. But I went through lots of Bradbury and uh, uh, Andre Norton and all the, the classic writers who were appropriate for my age at that time, later moving on to Asimov and all the greats. But at some point, and I can't remember what year it was, I drifted from science fiction to fantasy. And mm. I really got into Tolkien and uh, uh, my favorite author at the time, and still in some ways today, uh, Roger Zelazny, and just absorbed myself in uh, fantasy, loved it. And of course, of course, I found my way to D&D. Mm -hmm. um, soon after I moved to a new town, I made friends with a kid named Jeff Tucker and his older brother around D&D. This was back when, I think it was the transition period between those white pamphlets and the hardcover books. Yeah. So they taught me from the white pamphlets. And as with so many D&D &D players, I got into it so fast 
that soon after I got the Eric Holmes box set mm-hmm. uh, that was before what they call the red box and learned how to run a game myself. And soon after started collecting not just Dungeons and Dragons, but advanced Dungeons and Dragons and played throughout high school and college. And by the time college rolled around, the, the new hotness was this Forgotten Realms box set. And that became our, our campaign of default. Mm-hmm. I, I was usually the dungeon master, I'd say about 60% of the time. But I had a really good group of friends who were game to, to try their hand at it now and again. So I got to play sometimes, but usually I was running the game and I knew the world pretty darned well. And by the end of college, I had gone to college on a physics scholarship, but soon realized that while I loved physics, I was not adept at calculus and all the other <laughs> higher math. So I made a, 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 a left turn into English and graduated with an English degree, went on to my master's. And then I was teaching to support myself through, uh, through grad school. And that's when I basically accidentally became an editor because when you mark up enough papers and teach freshmen enough basic grammar and writing, you kind of become an editor. So around 93 or so, uh, I saw the job opening for TSR and joined as an editor. Uh-huh. And about a year later, I answered a, uh, an open call for short fiction and was invited to uh, contribute to an anthology. That's the short version. Yeah. Well, you've, you've covered so many uh, just excellent things that I want to ask you about. Um, the, the first, of course, we talked about before we started recording is you, you mentioned Asimov. I, I, when I told my wife that I was going to interview you and, and some of the things that you had done, she, she, she said he, he worked for amazing stories. And I know we haven't talked about this yet, but, but, you know, amazing stories again, started in, I think the twenties, 1920, um, uh, that's not an exact date, but around there. But they've, they, you know, they've over the years they've published things from Asimov and Ursula Le Guin, and so it, did you ever think that you would be working for this this amazing stories company? You know, who published some of your favorite authors? I mean, <laughs> that's crazy. No, it was completely unexpected, and I was there for a relatively short period of time. Uh, it's a much longer story and not as interesting as you might think. But uh, around the time that the Star Wars Insider License came to an end, I was then at Paizo Publishing, and we were looking at a way to continue the, uh, the periodicals department with another magazine. And at the time, Paizo believed they had the right to publish amazing stories, and they sort of did. Mm-hmm. They so- at least they got permission for a little while. And uh, so we did. We, we launched Amazing Stories, relaunched it after it had become dormant for a few years, and after less than a year, I was offered a job elsewhere and moved along. Mm-hmm. And we hired a new editor, and they continued for a little bit after I'd, I'd gone. But during that year, I had a wonderful time. I'd already met many of the people who I would invite to, uh, to contribute to the magazine for fiction, because through Dragon and to some degree through Star Wars Insider, uh, my convention contacts were very frequently with uh, writers, often very good writers. Mm -hmm. And so that was a wonderful experience. And while I can't really count myself as among those uh, longer term formative editors of the great magazine, I was honored and delighted to have been a small part of it near the end of its life. Well, can I ask you, we've kind of gone out of order and that was my fault. I I was just, I was just, uh, I I definitely wanted to mention amazing stories, but could you talk to us a little bit about the timeline, right? So when can you fit in the Paizo publishing and the TSR? Like how did, how did all this sort of happen? 
Sure. Once again, I'll try to give you the short version because I have a tendency to run on if you let me go. And around 1993, I was teaching English at James Madison University in uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, and enjoying it pretty much. I, I didn't mind teaching, but uh, I, I also loved fiction. I loved gaming. And uh, uh, a friend of mine pointed me to a job opening at TSR, which is a place I'd always wondered about working at. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't Dragon Magazine or Design or anything like that. It was uh, the associate editor of Polyhedron Newsine, which was the basically the little Dragon Magazine <sighs> for the Role-Playing Gamers Association, the organized play organization for D&D at conventions. And I applied for it thinking nothing would happen, but uh, I got an interview and it went well. And the whole process got teased out for quite a long time. So long, in fact, that I wasn't able to go to Gen Con that year because I, being a, a college instructor, not even a professor, uh, had a limited budget. And I could go to Gen Con and have a good time. Or if they offered me a job, I had enough money to move to Wisconsin and start my new job. So I held off and skipped Gen Con because they needed the approval of the vice president who was out in California for a few weeks. And just after Gen Con was done, I was told, yes, we would like you to come join us. So 93 was my first year at TSR and the first year in a little while that I'd missed Gen Con. So uh -huh. there was some good and bad. I worked at Polyhedron for, I think, a little over a year. And uh, a number of us in that department were not very happy with, not our immediate boss, who was wonderful. Gene Raby is terrific. But the boss above her was, a, a, he was an incompetent jerk <laughs> who alienated everyone eventually and so gene said you can't transfer out of this department until i escape so immediately after she escaped i saw that there was a job opening in periodicals which was very close to us and that was dungeon adventures and dragon magazine wow. and the dragon Ma editor had just moved on so i applied for that job but uh quite reasonably uh, the new big boss chose Wolfgang Bauer, who had been editing Dungeon Adventures to take on Dragon. And then he offered me Wolf's place at Dungeon. Hmm. And Wolf left very soon after that, within a year, to join Wizards of the Coast before the purchase. And uh, once again, I did not get the Dragon job. Another fellow came in who had a really great resume, uh, Tony Bryant. And he edited the magazine for a little while. And then things changed. and. Uh, we switched places. I uh, was the editor of Dragon Magazine, I think, starting in uh, in 96 was my first official mm -hmm. issue, although I'd helped out with issues before that. And as you may know, in 97, uh, Wizards of the Coast actually bought TSR yeah. and uh, hired most of us to come out to Seattle. And geographically, I was the first transplant. I wasn't the most important person to hire, but I was the first one to physically relocate out to uh, Renton, which is very close to Seattle, mm -hmm. and loved the city. I, ironically, I had long thought that I might one day move to Seattle, first for school and then just because of the uh, the legend of the city, the music scene, the art scene, the, the theater and the uh, film, all of which I loved. Yeah. And I can't remember what year it was. I think it was 2002 uh, because I was so jealous of my colleague Chris Perkins going to uh, Skywalker Ranch and to uh, visit the set of Star Wars that when he transferred, I asked the boss if I could move from Dragon to Star Wars Insider. He agreed. And so I, I got to edit that magazine for wow. a year or so. And then shortly thereafter, for uh, lots of business reasons that are very boring, 
Wizards' whole periodical department left Wizards of the Coast to form Paizo Publishing. And we continued to publish Star Wars Insider, Star Wars Gamer, and some other magazines. And as I already mentioned, at a certain point, the Star Wars license came to an end. We changed to Amazing. And in 2004, I moved to Canada to work on video games. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we've uh, we've interviewed and uh, we've heard kind of this uh, progression from from a few people. Um, one of them is Philip Athens. Uh, were, so I, yes. You know, Philip probably pretty well. Um, yeah. And uh, so did you guys you guys transferred um, out to Wizards around the same time, probably? Yes. He was part of the book department. And I was part of periodicals at TSR. We were right next to each other in a beautiful part of the building that we called the French quarter because of the lovely French windows in our offices. Uh-huh. And in wizards, we were also fairly close together um, in the same corner of the interior of the building that we had then facing what we call the mana pool, this lovely <laughs> fountain in the middle of the complex. That's great. Let's um, since since I just happened to to mention Phil, let let's um, let's go right to the to the Symbian novel series, right? So, can you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Uh, so, again, as I mentioned, you um, you are part of the team that wrote two books in the in the Symbian novel series. You, I think, were originally dubbed to to just do Talbot. Is that correct? Yes. Although I have to backtrack a little bit more, uh, as I think. Uh, Phil or somebody else might have mentioned to you, every once in a while, Wizards would do an open call for story proposals. And in 1994, I think, they did an open call both in and out of the company, inside and outside of the company, for an anthology called Realms of Magic. Mm. And I pitched a story, and they, they liked it. So they asked me to write one, and they were happy with it. And so once they're happy with you because of a story that you wrote, you no longer have to make blind proposals they will just come to you and say we'd like you to write a story for this other anthology Ah. and i did that a few times until finally there was another blind call because it was moving up from uh from short stories to to novels they didn't want to know who you were again so i pitched one novel proposal for the forgotten realms and i pitched one for ravenloft and there was a lot of competition for the forgotten realms slot so they said while we liked both of your pitches we didn't get a lot of Ravenloft pitches, so we want you to write a Ravenloft novel for us. Mm. And so I started to do that. And I started to sense something changing inside the book department at that time, but I didn't know what it was. And my editor just said, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, keep keep cranking. I got about halfway through that novel before he broke down and said, uh, the Ravenloft line is going to be canceled. Oh. So we're not going to publish that book. But what you can do is... Uh, We'll pay you a kill fee, and then you can rewrite it as a Forgotten Realms novel. And the the Ravenloft domain that I'd chosen was pretty advanced in technology, and it was not a good fit for the realms. Mm. So I had a counter proposal. I said, how about forget the kill fee? Let me start fresh with a realms novel, because that's what I really want to do. Although I love Ravenloft, I really want to write in the realms. And they said, okay, we have this anthology, this this series coming out. Uh-huh. And you can't you can't write the patriarch because that one is going to Ed. He's going to write the father of a family. Mm-hmm. But then there are all these other characters, and you can have the first pick. And so I ran over to the printer because I knew he had just printed out this uh, this proposals pitch sheet. And I saw I just scanned down the line, and I saw that next to one of the the children's name was secretly he's a werewolf. And I said, oh. mine. I want the werewolf. <laughs> and so I got I got second pick of the characters for Sebia. 
And then we wrote the anthology and they were happy with the novelette or short story that I'd written for that. And eventually they came back around and asked me to write a Talbot novel. And that's how the Sembia book came about. And that was my first full-length novel that was published. I had written a short one for them before, for, for TSR, for the D&D line. I'm sorry. Yeah, for the Forgotten Realms line, actually. Oh. Uh, the D&D novel came later. And uh, I had written, I can't remember how many, four or five short stories for anthologies before that. But you got to finally write in the realms, which is what you loved, right? Yeah, it was the one that I was trained to write for because I'd I'd run adventures in the realms for so many years. Ironically, I was a better expert of the realms before I came to TSR than after because it's all I played in high school and college, or at least in college. And then when I got to TSR, I was editing many, many different settings. And so... I was no longer up to date on the realms the way I used to be. Well, let's let me ask you about Talbot a little bit. That that was a that was such a fun book and so different in some ways from some of the other books. He, he was just a refreshing character, and I, I was curious about you know I, I had read that you you have a love for theater, so I was wondering if the choice to make Talbot an actor is sort of based on your own personal life. Uh, not my personal life, but uh, the plays that I love and the theater people that I love. Uh, I, I know a number of theater. I've always known a number of theater people, but here in Edmonton, a good number of my friends are actors or stage managers or otherwise involved in theater. And I am an avid theater goer. I, uh, I'm not an actor, not since I was a child. And I, I don't write or direct for the theater, but uh, I, I love the whole experience. And in college, although it wasn't my official specialty. I was a, I took every Shakespeare course that was available to us. And I don't know how obvious it is. And I don't remember whether anybody ever actually came out and no- noted that they had picked up some of the references. But uh, I always thought of Talbot as a sort of a Henry V character before he grows up and becomes the king. <sighs> and there are a number of characters whose names are meant to be echoes of Henry IV and Henry V. And other names are really just my nod to uh, universal horror movies uh, talbot is a reference to larry talbot the wolfman from the universal uh. horror movie and cheney is a reference to lon cheney jr and so on um, and you know once i went with werewolf uh as much as i admire the world of darkness i didn't play a lot of it but i do love mixing up the uh the werewolves and the vampires and basically that universal horror movie vibe but you mix that in with a little bit of theater, and I was I was pretty happy with the environment. Oh, it was it was fantastic, and I, I wanted to ask you too. Um, so eventually, you had to switch brothers, and and you had to write for Tamlin. Was that was that a hard switch? I mean, they're they're such different characters, and in some ways, you know, I felt kind of like Talbot should be the new patriarch, right? <laughs> oh well, I like that idea too. But uh, what happened? was that for reasons that I think he's already discussed with you, uh, uh, Clayt declined to continue with his character. He had a bad experience with the book book department. And they did want to finish up the line, but something else had happened at the same time. And that is that Ed Greenwood was about to launch a new series of novels for the realms. And he just couldn't do both the the Thamelon novel and this new thing. So he was going to focus on the new thing. So one day... 
uh, Phil and I think Pete, uh, Peter uh, Archer called me into the office and said, would you like to write the Tamlin novel? And my first reaction was, I don't know. That's yeah. not a character that I created. And I know that you weren't super keen on Tamlin. Um, but they said, uh, the, the mission is more complicated than that. They said, you also have to finish the story for Thamelon. You're going to have to wrap the series. Huh. And I thought, oh. Um, and I asked, oh, how would they like to see me uh, write Tamlin? They said, well, we would like you to make him more action-oriented and show some secret depths that he had not yet demonstrated in the, uh, in the short fiction. And so I said, give me a night to think about it. And I came up with some ideas and pitched them to Phil and Peter and Ed, uh, he was definitely involved because uh, his his character was going to be a big part of the novel. Mm -hmm. And they said, yes, we like it. And I said, well, give me one more day because I want to ask the other authors permission to use their characters. And as I as some of them had done already in the uh, in the Talbot book, I sent emails to the other authors and said, may I use your character in this book? And they all said yes. They were all very generous. Oh, and so okay. once all the pieces were in line and I, I knew that I could write a novel that brought the family back together for a, a real conclusion, I said, yes, I would like to do this. That's a great story. And now, would you have had to ask permission to, to you know, since you were sort of wrapping up the series or was this more of just like a courtesy? Well, I, th I think it's more important than a courtesy, but yeah, Wizards, the editors can do whatever they like with your characters, but uh, they're, they're personally pretty gracious. So they would they would always have a word with you if it was going to happen. But among authors, writer to writer, it, it's sacrosanct to me that I do not touch another person's character unless I have his or her blessing. Mm. And it's I've I got a taste for it, and I've done it a number of times, uh, not only for the realms but in other settings. And if the other author seems not only okay with it, but enthusiastic that I do it, but I don't ever do it without talking to the other author and, and getting her or his blessing. So was, the, I'm, I'm curious then about the, and the, the evolution of the Tamlin character after, after that novel, right? So in, into the Erebus Kale trilo trilogies, I, I was just wondering how you felt about, and if you read the Erebus Kale trilogies and um, his evolution after your novel. I haven't read the trilogies, although I'm aware of what happens there. Paul uh, sent me an email or gave me a call and said that he wanted to use a Tamlin for his ongoing series with Shadowvar, and he described to me what he was going to do. And I said, "Man, it's not my character, and you let me borrow uh, Kale. So anything you want, <laughs> do anything you want." And so he did. And uh, although I did kind of drift away from Realms novels that time because I was. Uh, working in other worlds, sure. uh, I had a, a, a vague sense of what he was going to do, and it was not a surprise when I found out, uh, but I didn't feel the least bit of ownership over Tamlin. And if it had been Talbot, maybe I would have felt differently, <laughs> yeah, but sure. uh, but it was never that, that, that was never the question, so I don't know how I would have responded. But I like to think that I would have uh, given Paul permission to do anything because he had been so kind to let me use Erebus Kale. But do, do you mind if I ask you about, you mentioned writing in other worlds. I think I read somewhere um, that nearly half of your published fiction, almost half of your published fiction, um, is in the world of Pathfinder with your uh, Radovan and the Count novel series. Is that right? 
That is true. If you're, if you're counting by book, it's less than half. If you're counting by words produced, it's probably more than half. Now, I, I also understand that not all of these stories are in novel form, right? Some of them are short stories, some of them are novellas, um, and that there's some question about where the reader should start. Is that right? Oh, uh, yes. People often ask where to start, and I, I can't even remember what the exceptions are anymore. I wrote a post about it on my website where I usually point people who ask these days, although fewer people ask now because it's been a few years. Um, there's the chronological order of the stories, which is a good choice in many ways because uh, sometimes I reveal surprises in non-chronological order. But uh, there's also the publication order. Uh, there, there's the chronological and there's the publication order. And in one or two cases, it's actually better to go publication order because a prequel story will reveal something to you that you didn't know before. Mm. But it's not super tricky. If you go chronologically, you'll only have one or two spoilers. And uh, honestly, I think that I became better at the voices of both of those characters by about the third novel. So from that point forward, I feel much better about the quality of writing mm -hmm. than I did in the first and second novel, both of which were written rather quickly. Well, you, I, I feel like, um, and, and you would know this better than I, but I feel like the more you write a character, the more you get to know the character, right? And, and that's for sure. And the easier it is to sort of know, oh, well, this is what he would say in this, in this case. Yes. Uh, um, so yeah, so I, I had started, I think you pointed me to, uh, was it the queen of thorns as a good place to start? Yes. I think that one is the one that came out most the way I envisioned it. And it had a, a proper a writing and editing schedule. And I just think it came out well. Yeah. Uh, each of the, each of the right about and account novels is in a different genre. Uh, they're basically love letters to my favorite genres. So the first one, uh, Prince of Wolves, in some ways it's my uh, black wolf do over because it's my love letter to Gothic horror. And the second one, master of devils is my love letter to uh, Kung Fu and Wuxia movies. Mm. And queen of thorns is the one I thought I would never write. It's what, uh, my old colleague uh, Kim Mohan would call the Elfie Wealthy novel. <laughs> it's the one that's most like the realms in many ways. And I, once I embraced it, uh, gosh, it was my sweet spot. It's what I really felt most comfortable with. And if if I had written those characters in the realms, that's the novel that would have resulted. Yeah. And the fourth one was basically a, a war epic. And the fifth one is basically what happens when your characters become epic level. Uh, oh. and, you know, the, the third movie in, in, in a fantasy trilogy, uh, that, that was the, the Lord of Runes, which turned out to be the last of the novels. Well, you told me something once in a, I think we were messaging on Twitter. Uh, you, you mentioned something about having some of your cover art hanging up in your house. Um, can, can you tell us, and I'm, I'm sitting here in a room with all of my characters and, you know, uh, characters from the podcast and I, I do similar things. Can you, can you tell us, um, I, I understand you, you have, um, at least, uh, cover art for black wolf. Can you tell us what else is hanging up around the house? I have two full paintings from the Sambia series. One is Black Wolf, which of course I had to have because the art director and the artist did such a great job capturing Talbot. It's one of those cases where you look at the art and you think, oh my God, that's exactly what I envisioned. Yeah. Um, but also because she made the wolf so prominent, I managed to pick up the cover to Halls of Stormweather, 
with Thamelon and Shamur with a great huge black wolf behind them. So I've got both of the covers that have Talbot on them. And I have sketches for the black wolf and for uh, Lord of Stormweather. But uh, art uh, commands a higher price than words. So I could not indulge in this every time that I wrote a novel, uh, even though the artist gave me a generous author's discount. So I don't have... uh, I don't have the original paintings of my other covers, but I do have prints for most of them, uh, especially the Pathfinder series. I would do exactly the same thing. That's pretty awesome. Well, you um, let's switch to some fun, uh, some fun questions now. Um, you mentioned uh, your love of movies. Um, I have a question for you. It's it's not meant to be a loaded question. <laughs> Feel free to say pass if you want to, but let me ask you this. Why hasn't there ever been a good Dungeons and Dragons movie? <laughs> well, you can point out the failings of other aspects of the production, but I think the bottom line is there hasn't been a great script yet. Uh, without a great script, even if you do have a good director and a great cast, then you've, you've got nowhere to go. Uh, but the current writers and director uh, attached to the D&D movie, the new D&D movie, they wrote Spider-Man Homecoming. So I have a pretty good feeling about uh-huh, that. That's right. And I also sense that they're D&D nerds. One of them is, you know, the principal geek from Freaks and Geeks. Uh, Daly is his last name. I forget his first name. Okay. And, and they've done a couple of uh, good movies beyond Spider-Man Homecoming. So I've, I've got a good sense here. And they've got a spectacular cast. So I'm trying not to look at the the production photos, because they always give you a bad sense of how things will look in the film. <laughs> um, and I, and I, I'm just crossing my fingers that they get right this time. And it, it will be because they wrote a good script. Well, I, you know, whether this one's good or not, I, I think um, we should put a plug for you writing a, 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 the next D&D movie script. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I think that everybody who has ever worked at TSR has had that fantasy. Yeah. Um, you know, as a sidebar, if you like fantasy movies and you like D&D movies, I recommend you check out the many hundreds and thousands of fantasy and action movies made in China at Hong Kong, hmm. uh, which, of course, is once again part of China. There's such amazing stuff there. And every once in a while, you'll find something where it is indistinguishable from a D&D movie. Really? Just a couple of years ago, there was a long Wuxia series that I adored uh, called Handsome Siblings. It's based on a Wuxia novel uh, that was written in the middle of the 20th century by one of the three great writers of Wuxia and has been adapted many times, but as far as I know, never this well. And one of the things that's great about it is by the, I don't know, fourth or fifth episode, they go full Harryhausen monster with one of their episodes. And later the heroes are going through dungeons and they're facing traps and, you know, recurring villains uh, just like D&D and as long as you can get over the barrier as uh, Bong Joon-ho put it uh, that one inch barrier of subtitles there's this world of amazing cinema out there Uh, some of my uh, cohorts people about my age miss the fantasy boom in movies from the the 1980s but it never stopped in China Mm. and there's lots of great stuff to find if you go looking for it well, I will. Um, I will put the. I'll see if I can find a link to to the movie you referenced, and I'll put it in the description here so people can look it up. It's a TV series, and it's on Netflix. Okay. It's called Handsome Siblings. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you for that. So, 
um, and also in talking to you, um, uh, sort of offline, um, you mentioned, um, a project that you're working on that you really couldn't tell me much about a few months ago, but I was wondering, um, it's the video game project you mentioned. I was wondering if you might be able to tell us something about it now. As it turns out, because of the long time in video game development, uh, it might be a few years before I can talk about it. But what I'm allowed to say now is that I'm back at Beamdog, where some time ago I worked on Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited about what we're working on, but uh, it's it's going to be a while before I can say anything else about it. Okay. All right. Well, that's fair. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, before we go, is there anything else you want to tell us that you're working on, something that we can look forward to to seeing from you? Well, during our COVID year and the year before it, I was very productive, and some of those projects are starting to come out. I just had a story called Morning in Rain Hollow in the Black Library Anthology Inferno, number six. That's in the Age of Sigmar setting, one that I've uh, often admired when I see people playing uh, Warhammer in game stores, but one that I hadn't been able to explore until recently. Mm. And uh, later this summer, uh, my good friend and colleague, Mark Tassin, has another book for his World of Ataltus coming out. I wrote most of it, although I'm sure they did some development on it. It's called Defenders of Dunbury. It's part of a much larger project that they've split into two. So later they will publish a book that contains the adventures that I wrote for it. But Defenders of Dunbury is basically a village and a castle and a whole shire around it full of non-player characters and adventures and mysteries and all sorts of fun stuff. It's basically what I would run for you if we sat down and you said, let's start a fresh homebrew D&D campaign. Ah, yeah. And let's use uh, Mark, Mark's uh, wonderful world of Ataltus as the foundation. That sounds awesome. I also wanted to point out that his artist, Russell Marks, is brilliant. And if for no other reason you will want this book, just to look on his beautiful, beautiful images. Oh, great. Well, I, um, I will, uh, I'll do some research and see if I can put any, any links to, to those also in the description so people can check them out. Yeah, um, I can send it to you, but it's basically ataltus.com. Um, I, I know the, the, the very last question that everybody's going to be wondering is that does Dave Gross still play Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, you know, just before COVID hit, I was running a Call of Cthulhu campaign, one of the great ones, mm-hmm. uh, Masks of and so, of course, we had to suspend that. And I'm not a big fan of playing online. I like to play in person. So I've spent the past year printing 3D terrain and mm. preparing for a return to gaming. And while I will get back to Call of Cthulhu this fall, first, I'm going to revive at least a few sessions of the classic Ravenloft campaign, Curse of Strahd. Yes. So this yes. October, I will get some people back together to play some D&D and some Call of Cthulhu. Well, I, that's going to put a smile on a lot of people's faces. <laughs> and, in, and and you may actually be the last author that I interview um, for this part of the trilogy focused on the Symbian novels. So again, thank you so much for coming. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Though this marks the end of the episode, the tale continues within a 10-day. Join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose.